yeah i think so i i really think like every company should have a design executive um and to just know that as a designer there's a lot of areas that you can provide value uh, but also don't lose sight of your craft you know mm -hmm. don't lose sight of your definition of yourself because that's that's what that's your superpower that's what gives you that magic and that's why you're in that room welcome to design drives your audio experience about what how and why design drives things forward a podcast hosted by Sebastian Gear, together with forward-thinking design practitioners from around the world. In this episode, I talk with Michael DiTullo at the recent IDC, International Design Conference in Chicago. This is a series of episodes where IDSA and Design Drives collaborated to bring you the best insights from the IDC speakers. In this talk with Michael, we dive into his rich knowledge from his career and journey, learning about his time at Nike, Converse, the design process of working together with Michael Jordan, then the time as a creative director at Frog moving from footwear design to designing consumer technology products in Silicon Valley. After that, we dive into what it means to report directly to the board of directors when he was the VP of design at Sound United. Besides continuing as a key contributor of Core77, Michael nowadays runs his own design practice in Portland which let us learn about how to set up your own design studio and practice. Enjoy. All right, I'm today with Michael Ditulo, who just won, we are here at IDC, and who won, just won a personal achievement award. Um, yeah, congrats on that. Thank you. How Thanks so feel? much. Um, it's still kind of sinking in, honestly. It's, it's been uh, a real honor to get the award, obviously. Um, and also, it was an honor to also be recognized the same year as Dan Harden, who founded Whipsaw and was one of you know, my kind of design heroes. So mm -hmm. um, it was humbling, really, to get the uh, award the same year as you know, someone you look up to so much. So yeah. it made it more meaningful. Mm -hmm. yeah. So maybe it would be great for the audience so they get a little bit of context. So maybe you can share a little bit of your journey, how it all started out, maybe going all the way back where you were starting to study design. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, even before that, um, you know, deciding to be a designer is a challenge a lot of mm -hmm. times, right? Like, uh, most of the times, like our parents want us to be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. And I always ask designers how they, uh, learned about design, how they decided to be one. Cause it's a little bit like a superhero origin story. I feel like mm -hmm. there's always this interesting story and, for for me, I was 13 years old and my parents asked me what I wanted to do when I grow up. And I said I wanted to draw stuff from the future because mm -hmm. I just thought that's got to be somebody's job. Right. And intuitively, I was always doing that. I was always just trying to look at this microphone. and I wonder what microphones in the future would be like. And, you know, um, and so I guess I I was a designer in a weird way long before I ever knew what it was. I think kind of a lot of kids do that when they're younger, they just kind of shed it at some point. And, and I was just a nerd and kept doing it. Um, but, uh, from, from there I, I went, I studied at the Rhode Island school of design. Um, and then, you know, at the time this was in the, you know, I was growing up in the eighties and early nineties is all before Google. So it was really hard to get information on things and you'd have to like write schools to get catalogs. And it was always, you're always taking like a big leap of faith. It felt like, and, uh, I also, you didn't know, you know, it was before 
Behance and Core 77, and you didn't know what was going on at other schools. So mm-hmm. um, I took some time and studied at Cleveland Institute of Art for a semester and then did an exchange program in the summer uh, at Domus in Milan through RISD um, just to like experience other schools and you know really kind of other philosophies and i think that really shaped me you know that uh that term abroad in italy um when i was 19 years old i mean it really definitely shaped my perspective on design at a young age um from after school uh i struggled a bit honestly to get my first job it was mm-hmm. uh, you know I, work super hard in school and graduate and i think i got the faculty award whatever that means and then i was like okay cool like when did somebody call me to give me a job uh um so for about six months i i struggled i I did some freelance work for some some small groups and i just worked on my portfolio again and again uh, until i i was starting to get callbacks and um I got a job at a small firm at the time that had just started a year prior called Evo in Connecticut. Um, and it was this great, like I just had a real connection with the design director uh, who really became like an older brother to me who I, st- I still go to uh, mm-hmm. for advice 20 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were a small team, but uh, like the, the, at that time, the, the slogan for, for the studio was big design, small ego. And I just I really connected with me. I, I loved that. And we were doing work for Bose and Nike, and Hasbro, and Timex, you know, all these big companies. But we we're this small group of, uh, I think I was the fifth employee. Mm. And when I, I left 12, uh, 12 years, <laughs> I left four years later, and I think it was 15 people. So it was just mm. like a really nice size. I, and I loved that intimacy to it. I think that's really what inspired me when I set up my studio. It's like, I don't really want to be more than five people. Mm-hmm. It also like allows you to work on a lot of different things, right? Yeah, really different things. And it allows me to be involved, right? So we don't take more than three projects at a time. So mm-hmm. the clients know they're going to get a third of my time. Mm-hmm. So after Evo, um, I went to Nike for eight years and worked in sportswear, Jordan, and... Um, my last role there was as a design director for Converse after they purchased Converse. Mm-hmm. And yeah, after eight years of designing shoes um, for you know, one of the biggest brands in the world, um, I, I decided to, to leave corporate. You know, I was in consulting, you mm-hmm. know, went corporate because I felt like I wasn't learning. Mm-hmm. I felt like there was this all this stuff that was happening after we were done. <laughs> And, and and we weren't at that table, and I was like, I want to go corporate so I can learn all the things that are happening to the design. Mm-hmm. And I realized that those things weren't happening to the design; those are actually parts of the design process that mm-hmm. we just weren't involved with as consultants, right? And it was going to China to the factory and uh, you know working with really closely with engineers, and you know if you're working on a piece of consumer electronics, it's like, what's the startup noise? What's it do when this happens? Like all these moments that we weren't a part of because they were happening further downstream. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after eight years of doing that, I wanted to kind of take what I learned and bring, bring it back to consulting. Cause mm-hmm. I felt, I felt like it made me a much better consultant. I could empathize with our clients more. And it's kind of funny. I think designers, we talk about empathy a lot when with the end user, but we don't, we don't tend to think about empathy with our clients or stakeholders. Mm-hmm. And, it. You know, when we were at frog, we'd, 
we'd be doing deliverables and be like, oh, there's a 24 hour turnaround on this decision. And I'd be like, guys, like our client can't make a decision in that time because he has to show his engineering partners yeah. and his boss and there's going to be a whole meeting. And it's going to be like a week before yeah. we get feedback. And uh, after you got that experience, you could you know, emphasize with that, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, one of our, our bigger clients uh, in the San Francisco studio at the time, um, after two years, asked me to come in-house. So then I went back to corporate um, to a consumer electronics conglomerate called Sound United um, that owned Polk Audio, Definitive, Denon, Marantz, and um, was chief design officer there. So that was a unique experience reporting mm -hmm. to a board of directors and the CEO directly. Uh, and I was running industrial design, packaging, all the way through like marketing, creative, advertising, oh, displays wow. in the store. Um, everything from like, who's this for and what is it? What should it do to what the tag says at the store? <laughs> mm -hmm. So that was a unique experience. Um, and then two and a half years ago, I started my own studio, again, trying to take all those learnings. And so I've been consulting with clients in you know, new ways, like one of our uh, biggest clients this year is a company called Cure. They make architectural wall and ceiling systems and uh, it's a retain retainer engagement. And we're working on product design, but also like what's their development calendar to launch products and what's the marketing story, what's the brand positioning um, down to like just coaching individual team members on the client side. So mm -hmm. it's been really cool to take basically all of my experiences from the past 20 years and put that into a consulting yeah. practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. What were some of your favorite projects you got to work on? Um, I, I think uh, so many stories and it's, it's more, it's more like the stories that go along with those projects. Than the actual project. Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Well, cause when I look at the product, I often just look at like, the mistakes I made or how I would do it differently. Yeah. But, but when I think back on the process and working with people, that's always mm -hmm. like the most fun. So obviously like working in Jordan and getting to work with Michael Jordan, that mm -hmm. is just like an amazing, you know, experience. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, last year, two years ago, we worked on a bunch of transformers work, uh, for Hasbro and some of that work, uh, influenced, some of the vehicles in the in the Bumblebee movie. So that was like, I didn't even know, I didn't know they were gonna be in the movie until the client texted me like, make sure you go to, to Bumble, the Bumblebee movie opening right. uh, <laughs> opening night. I think you're gonna be pretty excited. So, um, so you know, those are some certain experiences where it's, it's like um, irreplaceable, right? It's like mm -hmm. a once in a lifetime, you have to be in that place at that time. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think, yeah, most memorable, I think, working with Jordan. Um, some of I work for Icon. You know, that, that was special just because it's such a unique product. They're all handmade. We've been working with that client for 12 years. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. yeah. Can you tell a little bit more about the collaboration at Jordan? Yeah. Yeah. So at the time, I, I don't know what it's like now, but at the time, you know, Michael was pretty involved. He was you know, retired from basketball mm -hmm. and he's kind of a product guy. He's got a lot of product insights and, you know, in a way it's like, you know, every conversation with him is like ethnography, right? Cause, um, just this, all the athletes you're working with are like 
you know, they're like F1 car drivers. They're like, you know, alpha users. And Mm -hmm. it's amazing to see the, the, like, after two hours of play, like Michael would play in a shoot for two hours and it looked like it was like 10 years old. (laughs) It just seems busted out. Like no matter what, they can just be destroyed Mm -hmm. because these guys are playing so hard. We're putting so many forces on the product, right? Like you're running like a few miles in the in the course of a basketball game. You're just running back and forth, and then like lateral movements and you know up and down, you know jumping and and um, there's so much stress being put on their bodies and on the the product because the product is the interface between their body and the court. Yeah. Um, and the decisions you you make, you know, they matter. And to to them, it's like you know, if you if you design a product that doesn't perform and they hurt themselves, it could be a career-ending event for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's really, I don't know. I, I I'm actually like I don't play sports, I don't watch sports, and I think the athletes also just thought it, that was hilarious. That like mm-hmm. I don't care about sports. I just to to me they were it was just ethnography of like what problems can I help solve for them, mm-hmm. and then on one hand, like the biomechanical problems, and then what things from their life could I like bury into the product to make it this emotional story? Like I was working on this uh, shoe for Derek Jeter, uh, who's a baseball player for the New York Yankees. And I just love to like put these little encoded messages in there. And I, I remember I was talking to him once and I asked him who his favorite player was. And his favorite player who he looked up to when he was a kid was a player by the name of Dave Winfield mm-hmm. um, and uh, who was also on the Yankees. And I, I mean, he and I are kind of similar in age and we both grew up in kind of the same area. So, and like Dave Winfield's number, I think was 41 or 42 and his jersey number and uh, Derek Jeter's was number two. So like on the side panel of the shoe, on the lateral side, I put, you know, 41 purse. Uh, that were really small, but two of those perfs were bigger. Mm-hmm. And I showed the the prototype to Derek, and he was like, "Hey, why are these two perfs bigger?" And I'm like, "Because there's 41 small perfs, and two of them are bigger." And he's like, "It's my number and Dave Winfield's number together, right?" And it's like only hidden stories, right? hidden stories, right? That only a product geek would know. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, when you were uh, then working with Jordan, how was it working in terms of like iteration? Uh, did you uh, came up with a new prototype and design? Did you guys build it and then you gave it to him to try it out? And how did yeah. that iteration work like? He he was pretty. Uh, I mean, because he had been at that point when we were working on the Jordan Twenty had just come out. I think when I joined, so he had been working on footwear product with footwear designers for twenty years mm-hmm. at that point. So he was pretty savvy to the process, and he could you could show him a sketch and he'd get it. Um, and so so because of that, he would be involved pretty early on. And so we would show him sketches and concepts. Mm-hmm. And sometimes like um, in, in one, one occasion, uh, my boss actually was invited to go spend like a three-day weekend with Michael at this motorcycle race and he couldn't go. So he asked me if I wanted to go and I was like, yeah. And the, the race was rained out and it was in uh, the middle of Ohio, mid Ohio track. So I literally just spent three days like sketching shoes with Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. And so I came back and he, you know, we worked through a lot of details and then come back and then build prototypes and then show him the prototypes. And 
yeah, sometimes you play in them. And mm-hmm. it was interesting because a few in a few cases, it was one shoe in particular that came out of that weekend that um, you know marketing decided not to bring to production. But Michael loved it so much that we actually had to open up tooling just in his size mm-hmm. <laughs> so he could wear them, which to me, I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of the relationship between the Formula One driver and the boxing crew. You know, they yeah. try to improve it, like look for the things that could be better. And then the user or the Formula One driver gives feedback. And uh, yeah. so it's interesting, that kind of relationship in a design process, right? Yeah, very similar. And the cool thing is about it is it's so each product is iterative, but you could also look at I looked at my my whole three years in Jordan as one project mm-hmm. because it was like every season we were going to launch a new basketball shoe, right? So, and and by the time you were halfway done to production with one shoe, you were already working on the next one because of the way that the seasons launched. So you literally could be applying learnings to like three different collections of shoes at the same time as they're moving through the process. So mm-hmm. that was, um, that's one thing I enjoyed about it. It was like, hey, we're going to do it again mm-hmm. in six months. So... Um, can you tell a little bit more about what you learned, you know, switching between consultancy and, and in-house and some of the learnings uh, around that? Yeah, and I, I think people often ask me which I prefer, and it's it's like they're just different, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, with consultancy, like I love the speed. I love the variety. Um, working on so many different things. Every project is so different. Um, every client is so different. And so that's like really, it's almost like if you're an adrenaline junkie, you know, you're just like deadlines all the time and mm-hmm. it's very fun. Um, and and you get to cross pollinate a lot, right? Like, so it's like right now, the, the three projects in the studio are uh, a housewares project, uh, architectural interiors uh, project and um, footwear for people with diabetes. So you have all these opportunities for very, different projects to influence each other, all the learnings that you, that you don't maybe get in-house. Um, but you don't get, obviously in-house, you get the ability to develop such deep relationships with your engineering partners and your marketing partners. Um, you get the opportunity to go so deep in a subject matter and become real expert in it. Um, and you really kind of hold hands on a project all the way to production that we don't get as much. Sometimes we get on the consulting side, but there's usually not the budget for that. Mm -hmm. So, and it's always a grass is greener thing for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I love both. If I could figure out how to put all those things together, I would do it. Um, I think the closest I had it was at Sound United, where even though everything we were doing was consumer electronics, we had you know, five or six different in-house brands um, and one central design group that I was running. So that was like, we were almost like an in-house consultancy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really exciting. Um, but, and and now kind of like consulting under my my own name has is, is been interesting because now the studio is a, pro- is a project too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, if you have the, it's not for everybody, but if you have the mental flexibility, I, I always recommend to designers like try to do both. Awesome. Yeah, because you'll even if one suits you more than the other, I think you'll learn from the experience. Mm-hmm. 
And you've um, done, I mean, you've done that too mm-hmm. in your career. How was it for you? I know you, you were switching between also quite, you know, from in-house teams, from uh, consumer electronics to, you know, appeal and footwear. Right. Right. And and you already mentioned it's a different game if you're in a consultancy and versus in-house, right? Right. So how was it diving then into a complete new industry? Because, you know, that's, you know, similar to, you know, for people who maybe want to break out of a certain industry and like get into a new industry. Yeah. And it's, you know, if you're in-house, maybe not so easy um, than if you were in consultancy, right? Right. Share a little bit. Did the consultancy experience, I guess, helped you, right, to you know make yeah. the leap to a different industry? But it's a good question. I think starting in a consultancy was a good base because it taught me that you know I that I could work on anything, right? You you can you can do it. Um, and then being in footwear for eight years, um, you know, it was a challenge to get out because people people don't realize how complex working on footwear is. Mm. They think it's mainly a styling exercise. And so you can get pigeonholed. And uh, so I did a number of things. Um, God, I think that was, I left Nike in 2010. Yeah. And, um, or 2008, mm. 2008, something like that. Um, and so I, I just, I knew I wanted to try to get back into CE. Mm-hmm. So I did a number of concept projects for myself, um, and you know, work on these conceptual like personas and storyboards, and then I just send it all to Gizmodo, <laughs> and then they publish it because it's a blog and they need content. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. now, like you're being featured, you're setting out these projects for myself, getting featured, and then you know, when I applied at Frog, they they saw that I was already doing that work, and uh, I, I think controlling that definition of yourself is mm-hmm. so important because mm-hmm. when i started at nike my they gave me my business cards and they said footwear designer and i was like hey, yeah i'm not a, i'm a i'm a designer yeah, yeah. I work for a company that makes footwear exactly and that was when i interviewed at frog they're like ah footwear guy and i was like nope i'm a designer yeah uh, that works for uh, the biggest brands in the world designing products for like super elite users and i was like if you guys aren't interested in that then yeah and people try i want to try to put you into box right that's always the right. problem after some years yeah but you could control that yeah you, you know and, and so i think for me I've, I've always you know every time i get a new sketchbook in the back i write down like my definition of myself mm-hmm. it's just like something to always think about yeah Something that's also really interesting is that you recently started your own design studio. Can you talk a little bit about um, that process? Yeah, so I've always wanted to start my own studio. I mean, since, I mean, when I was in school, I was always looking up to Raymond Lowy and Teague and Dreyfus, you know, these you know, um, founders of, of our profession, right, in, in a way. Um, and they were working across multiple industries and, and consulting with big corporations. Uh, and then and I, I, I looked up to, to Hartmut Esslinger who started Frog so much. And I remember he told me that he only interviewed with one company out of school. He interviewed with Braun, with Dieter Rams. And Dieter Rams said <laughs> that he was unemployable. Okay. And, and he said, to, also he said the biggest insult to a German designer, he said, oh, maybe you could work for Philips. <laughs> and so he's like, well, since I was unemployable, I figured I'd just employ myself. And he started Frog right. right out of school. So I have such admiration for these design entrepreneurs. 
Um, but I, I think I was maybe, I don't know, I, I, I felt like I had so much to learn. And so I was on this journey in a way, like collecting experiences, just, mm-hmm. you know, working somewhere, contributing as much as I can and learning as much as I can. And, um, and I always was putting it off, you know, when I left Frog, I was thinking about, um, starting my own studio, you know, my friend Howie Nook and I used to talk about it all the time and the opportunity came up at Sound United and I was like, well, it's almost like starting my own studio, but for a company, so it's safe. Um, and after five years there, my, my wife, Christina, who's also my business partner, she's the one that pushed me and she Mm -hmm. said, you know, you've always been talking about starting your own studio and you always say, but after I learn this, I'll do it. After I learn this, I do it. She's like, I think you checked off every box on, on the list. And so it's time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I, I was terrified. I was so nervous. Mm-hmm. And in the first week, two two contracts signed in the first oh, week. Wow. Like the first day, a contract signed. So uh, I, I now I wish I did it two years sooner. <laughs> but, but that's okay. You know, I, I feel like. Uh, it's it's been really smooth, and I'm very passionate about keeping it to the team small, so that we can just take the right kinds of projects, um, and really just taking projects that I'm interested in. You know, mm-hmm. projects where I think that I can make a difference for the client, um, and that we could be of value. And, and sometimes we we say no and suggest another project. So mm-hmm. like a, a large luggage manufacturer came to us a couple of years ago and asked us to design another bag in their collection. And I just like, you know, as a good consultant, I don't feel like I could with good conscience take this project. And they said, why? I'm like, because I don't think that my team and I could do that project better, faster, cheaper than your in-house team. Because mm-hmm. you're already to have developed this language. It's just another bag in that language. And you guys live and breathe that every day. And I understand if maybe you're a little short staffed and so you don't have time to get after it, but I don't think that it would be a good service for us to provide. Mm-hmm. I was like, but what I would love to do for you is, you know, you're you know, a 42 year old brand that's mainly appealing to boomers and you're missing out on really this whole boom in millennial travel. Mm-hmm. I would like to design a whole collection for you around a new persona of the millennial traveler and that relates to your existing persona of an adventure traveler, but it's more around how people are doing it now. Mm-hmm. And, and they, you know, oh, that's interesting. I thought I'd never hear from them again. Two months later, they came back and like, let's do that project. Oh, wow. And it's a much bigger project, mm-hmm. uh, a project where I felt like we could add value because it was something new for them, mm-hmm. helping them take a risk. Mm-hmm. reshaping their brand hopefully making it relevant um, for today yeah I assume it appealed to them that you also had a strong point of view right and you just went with them, the offline they were really thinking about like where you could provide value I think this is also appealing I guess yeah, yeah. I, I, I think so I, to me that's always like the difference between a freelancer and a consultant mm. you know a freelancer is an extra set of hands for your team when you get busy and a consultant is a person or a team that can help you change your point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I look at, uh, like somebody asked me like on their website, why does it say like brands you've collaborated with instead of 
companies you've worked for. And I'm like, because we don't work for them. We collaborate with them. It's, mm. it's a, we're coming in to help them gain a new perspective. And to me, that's where the value is. The output of that is design, mm -hmm. but the value is helping them shift their point of view. Mm. What's also interesting in your new role is that you have to communicate the value of design or the impact of design to your clients, right? Yeah. And we were chatting earlier about also your time at Sound United that you uh, were directly reporting to the board. Yeah. So I'm wondering a little bit about um, your approach towards um, you know, communicating the impact of design. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, they speak a different language, right? Like pretty much everyone on the board had a background in finance. Um, and so I needed to speak enough of their language, but I didn't want to turn into a finance person, right? <laughs> Obviously. Um, and so what I tried to do, uh, which helped me prepare me to start my own consultancy actually was like all the time I was teaching them, you know, what we could do. Right. And so in uh, my first year there, I was really only had industrial design and Every year I set a challenge for myself to ask the board to do more. Uh, so we started with ID and then we added like ID and UX and packaging. And then just every year, just like, let's do another. So by the end we were doing like product launch videos because mm -hmm. <laughs> um, they were seeing the value of one vision controlling everything for these brands. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that's very efficient. I mean, I, I, I was able to pitch it to them being efficient, which means saving money, right? <laughs> but in their mind and time, time yeah. and money, uh, but also like showing them the impact on the consumer of like, mm -hmm. you know, I, the, your product in a way is, is your biggest form of marketing, right? That's, that's the thing that people live with, not mm -hmm. the advertisement. Mm -hmm. So having that one vision and just every quarter having to present to the board and really to justify our existence, right? Mm -hmm. our, and and as I a design department yeah, yeah right and i didn't i never i never went to a single meeting without an ask so i not only was i justifying our current existence but i was like i want more so we can do more mm -hmm. um and so um pitching to them all the time and and helping them in a way empathizing with them because they just didn't know they didn't know what design could do for them mm -hmm. and i couldn't tell them what design could do for them i had to show them mm -hmm. and Some of the things I'm the most proud of there, um, the innovations that we got through, almost have nothing to do with product. You know, like every year I would host this big innovation offsite where we'd invite marketing, uh, design, engineering, finance people. Uh, every team at the company basically sent a few representatives. Mm -hmm. And it would be like three or four days of... Um, You know, we would report out on a bunch of ethnography and that would lead into a bunch of workshop sessions. And one of the things I was the most proud of that came out of one of those sessions was, oh, you know, like we make this like superior sounding sound bars um, for home theater. But it's hard to demonstrate that because in the stores that they're sold in the U.S., it's like a big the store is like a big metal box, right? Mm -hmm. Like Best Buy. You can't really hear the difference between our product and a competitors in that environment. And so what came out of that was like, well, the best place to demo this product is actually in someone's home. So how do we get a product in someone's home to demo? Like, well, what if we had like, you know, 
an ice cream truck, you know, a truck that could roll around suburban neighborhoods and like let people try these things out in their home. Like, well, we can't afford to do that. It's gonna be a huge expense. So we're like, okay, well, what other trucks are roaming around these neighborhoods? Oh, the cable truck. Mm-hmm. So, and, and then we pitched cable companies and satellite companies were like, hey, could you, would you wanna do this? One of them finally signed on and it went from nothing, no business to the second biggest retail, second biggest retailer for the company mm-hmm. with one product. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, I was really proud of that, like the ability of design to shift the whole company. And it's really, it was a sales strategy mm-hmm. with the output. Mm-hmm. What's also interesting, you contribute for Core 77 for a long time. Mm. Uh, how many years actually? Uh, I think they asked me to be a moderator in 2003. And then I, so I write for the blog every once in a while since maybe 2005 or six. Yeah. And then I've produced a few events. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And Core 77 is really much also connected to industrial design. So I'm wondering a little bit about where you see the current state of industrial design and where do you see it uh, moving forward? I think it's, to me, a really exciting time to be an industrial designer. Um, I know there's there's a little bit of, I feel like I've been dealing with pessimism in the field since, mm-hmm. since I graduated. I mean, or since before I graduated, I remember my first day in a sophomore design studio uh, in college. This is 1995. The head of the department got up and said, there's no more industrial design jobs. Industrial design is dead. That was 1995. I've been gainfully employed for 20 years. So um, I feel like there's so many awesome tools that are coming online. And whether we're talking about generative design or um, new practices, new methodologies, new tools like, you know, 3D printing, mm-hmm. moving from rapid prototyping to rapid manufacturing, mm-hmm. that I feel like our, our profession is going to be very different in 10 years, mm-hmm. 20 years. Uh, and to me, one of the biggest barriers as an industrial designer is tooling. It's just like when you want to make something and you want to make it bold, risky, when you pitch that internally to a client or to a company if you're in-house they're like well you know that's going to be five hundred thousand dollars in tooling and we can't take that risk if it doesn't sell and i've been on the wrong side of that decision where i've gotten something through and my boss has taken me to the warehouse and said see all these things that's the thing that you made us do and it didn't sell um but really it's a tooling issue right so if if we can have rapid manufacturing we don't have to pay for tooling it's literally just you know, it doesn't matter how many you make of something. We, we could be making a different phone for every human, right? And it wouldn't matter because as long as the machine is running. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that there will be more opportunities for industrial design because mm-hmm. people will be able to have more tailored solutions, whether those, those are functional solutions, um, you know, whether those are, are solutions for people with different abilities um, or, um, or, even just expressive, different expressive solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think that to me is going to be really exciting. And, and then honestly, like, I think that we're at a real pivotal point in society mm-hmm. in terms of what's going on politically, economically, environmentally in the world. And so I think the things that we won't need uh, will be 
different in the next mm-hmm. 10 or 20 years. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, a, again, a great time to be alive as a designer, to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. So would you would that be your advice to you know young design students, or young designers to embrace the factor yeah. of uh, rapid manufacturing as you know one as a key topics moving forward with industrial design? Yeah, I think, and I would say uh, also just in in embrace um, mental flexibility because mm-hmm. I think some of the things we're not going to be able to predict, and so um, like you see some of the things that that like guys like uh, Nick Baker are doing with like VR sketching, mm. you know, like what is a sketch? What is a 3D model? What is a, what is a product? Like all these things could be very different in 10 years. Our process, you know, what if our process is like putting on a VR headset, doing a 3D sketch, pressing print and making a product, you know, mm. like, uh, and so, you know, what's, what's going to be our future process? How does that affect our business model? Mm-hmm. How do we um, maintain kind of a level of craft? Um, and I guess to balance it out, like I think of like, uh, as people ask me like, oh, are you afraid that like when, once everyone has access to these tools that there'll be no, there won't be a need for being a designer. And I'm like, No, I mean, I have Microsoft Word, but I have never written a novel. You know, <laughs> I have GarageBand, but I still tend I still tend to listen to music made by uh-huh. musicians, not by myself. Um, and they're just tools. Uh-huh. And so they're tools to help us be better at our job. Um, and at the same time, the old tools are still relevant too, right? Like J.K. Rowling wrote Harry Potter on a legal pad on a train. So, you know, she didn't even... Sometimes, sometimes the tool the tool doesn't matter. The mm-hmm. result matters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. Um, maybe if we zoom out a little bit, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of um, talk in the recent years about the impact of design that is you know, getting more and more important. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just industrial design, generally sure. speaking, design. Right? There have been a lot of acquisitions from design consultancies. Oh, right? yeah. uh, what is your your view on that? You know, it's it's. Um, I, I love that design is having more influence and more impact. And, you know, I love that a lot of times, like we're, I mean, we're just a small, you know, less than five people consultancy and we're like working directly for CEOs of mm-hmm. big companies. Um, and so I love that design has that seat at the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the danger is that we dilute the word to lose meaning. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, You see a lot of people that maybe don't have the skills or the training taking on the term. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I think, I think it would be important for us to, to continue to define what is and what is not mm-hmm. design. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not everything cool has to be design. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'll, be, you know, I'll, I'll talk to a lot of designers who's like, I want to change the world. And like, well, Maybe you should go into writing public policy mm-hmm. or, you know, maybe it would be better for you to not be a designer and work for Elizabeth Warren, mm-hmm. you know, or Bernie Sanders for a year and shape policy. Um, and it doesn't have to be called design. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, interesting. I don't know. I think it'd be interesting to like draw some. It's different for every person. Right. Yeah, yeah. So but but I think it, maybe it's important for everybody 
listening and watching to to create that definition for themselves. Mm-hmm. And that that definition is is fluid. Just because that's the definition that you or I make today doesn't mm-hmm. mean that it's going to be the same definition that I hold ten years from now. Mm-hmm. I was I reserve the right to change my mind. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you address specifically? You know, I think some of the things you were. Uh, talking about, do you address also the aspect that you know design gets democratized you know, a lot? Um, there has been a lot of discussion in recent years also about you know everyone is now a designer and like what is actually design and like you know the whole topic about design thinking being embraced by um, other disciplines. Uh, is that something you had in mind when you? Were, yeah, yeah, uh, I for sure. I I feel like it's it's. Um, awesome that creative problem solving is mm-hmm. being embraced by everyone the problems that our world is facing is not going to be solved by people memorizing facts it's going to be solved they're going to be solved by people uh, embracing creative problem solving mm-hmm. and nonlinear thinking i maybe take a little I, i'm not so arrogant to think that design owns those things mm-hmm. i think i've worked with cr- crazy creative engineers and business people and even like people in in law and finance and uh you know were they practicing design thinking i mean i don't know i I think they were great creative problem solvers great non-linear thinkers i think there are some tools and methodologies that you can use to like up your abilities in those in those areas maybe by 10 maybe 20 percent But if you are a very rational, linear thinker, you know, reading a book on design thinking isn't going to make you this crazy creative problem solver. Mm -hmm. I think it's something that has to be taught from a young age. Um, And one of the things I've been really excited about in the last couple of years, one of the benefits of uh, owning my own studio is I can really shape my time the way I want to. And I've been doing some volunteer work with elementary schools who Mm -hmm. are trying to bring design in for third and fourth graders. Because I think that it's not going to, you know, some 45-year-old white dude who's been working in finance his whole life isn't going to read a design thinking book and become a different person. It has to start with, Mm -hmm. you know, boys and and girls at that, you know, second, third grade. Because all of those kids, those kids actually are all designers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They can, like, you you ask those kids to, we did a a chair design project. We want, like, Man, those kids are like the craziest ideas for chairs. Yeah. <laughs> But some somewhere that like stops, right? Like fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. All of a sudden, that that thinking closes off, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I I think we need to be encouraging it. If if design thinking has anywhere it can make an impact, it's I think in an educational setting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Where do you see this you know conversation about? Or this rise of you know the topic of important of design moving forward, uh, where do you see the where do, where do you see it going? Um, you know, I definitely think that every company should have a design executive that reports high up. And I mean, there was I, times where I was in meetings where I was just like, man, I don't really understand why I'm in this meeting. I was in a contract negotiation between us and Microsoft one time and like the CEO of our company and the the business man business unit leader at Microsoft just like at a total impasse on this one contract point and uh yeah I was just like 
doodling in the corner just so bored and fi- and fi- I, and i i had saw the solution since the beginning but i was like well these two guys are smart business guys like there must be a reason they're not bringing this up yeah. and finally i was just like hey guys like why don't you just do this and it was over like royalty amounts and i was like why don't we just have it be the lower rate that we wanted but if it hits a certain number that microsoft thinks we'll get to then we'll trigger the higher royalty and they're like oh genius yeah done <laughs> and, just, and my boss was like that's why i want you in these meetings uh-huh. and so um yeah i think so I, I really think like every company should have a design executive um and to just know that as a designer there's a lot of areas that you can provide value um, but also don't lose sight of your craft you know mm-hmm. don't lose sight of your definition of yourself because that's that's what that's your superpower. That's what gives you that magic. And that's why you're in that room. Mm-hmm. There's, yeah, there have been a lot of companies embracing the aspect of like having actually a um, designer on the board. Do you think that you think it's going to be increasing or is, um, you know, you think it's a growing topic or did we hit already? Um, yeah, I, I think it will be. And, you know, I think the other thing is like we forget that like, you know, Dieter Rams was on the board at Braun, mm-hmm. right? We forget that like, Elliot, These things happened before, right? Yeah, yeah. It, we forget that Elliot Noise was like controlling design at IBM. You know everything from like what the typewriter looked like to hiring Isamu Noguchi to design their campuses. You know, mm-hmm. so you know we forget that Raymond Lowy like wore a double-breasted suit every day and just like strolled in and talked to the CEOs of companies, right? So I I think like I think it's just having confidence in ourselves. I think. Um, Companies would definitely benefit from more designers being on their boards. Um, I've been in talks with several companies about that. Um, and I, I think that, um, and I think it's just a balance. And like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, I love leaning on our skills. I mean, I remember I was in this one executive session and oh, it was just going on for hours arguments over should we do this or should we not and blah 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 and again like i just kind of like i like drew something in my notebook i took a phone picture of it with my phone and literally emailed it to everybody that was in the meeting at that time and they all their laptops open and it all popped up and they're like and michael just did it and i was just like yeah you guys are just wasting time you're burning money (laughs) like Uh like 10 executives in a room for four hours yelling at each other and you literally like burned the budget for the project yeah (laughs) I guess that's the skill set of just, you know, connecting the dot and, you know, making it you know, tangible for people. Yeah, thank you so much. I think we need to wrap this up. Thank you so much for sharing these uh, amazing insights. Well, really inspiring. Yeah, thank you for having me. I mean, it's, it's a great podcast. And so it's an honor to be on the list. That was the episode. If you want to give us feedback on the podcast, have something to contribute to the next episode, or just want to get in touch, feel free to connect with us either on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram messages, or simply via the designdrives.org website. We love to hear from you.